Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4. I will read uh, from verses 1 through 12. That will be what we'll be looking at this morning. So Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? Was he circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So last week, if you recall, we were looking at Romans chapter 3, the last few verses of that chapter from 27 down to 31. And in that section there, we saw Paul gives us, I guess, like a thesis statement or a purpose statement or sort of just like a summary statement of how one is made right with God. When he says in verse 28, therefore, we conclude there, that, that word conclude kind of suggests that he is concluding an argument. Therefore, we conclude that a man or a person is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, that's a pretty clear statement, right? I mean, it leaves no wiggle room. You, you, you are either ju- you're justified by faith, not by works of the law, apart from works or deeds of the law. And this is the heart of the issue, right? It's faith versus works. It's grace versus law. And the question is, how is one made right with God? How is a person saved? And Paul here is putting forth what has always been understood as the classic or the historic or the reformed understanding of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Now, while that's, that much seems pretty clear, given what the Bible, which is the infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word of God, says here and in other places, but what has generated a ton of debate in recent decades, like recent decades going back maybe to the late 60s, early 70s, uh, what has generated a ton of debate is what or to whom is Paul arguing? Okay, there's, there's a lot of debate in Pauline scholarship over 
the, the, the type of Judaism that Paul was arguing against, okay? And now the classic understanding is that, you know, we get from Luther all the way on down, is that the, the Jewish religion at the time was a legalistic religion. So they thought that you could earn salvation, you can earn righteousness by deeds of the law, by just fulfilling the law, doing the law, you can kind of earn your way to a righteous standing before God. That has been the traditional, classic, historical understanding of the people to whom Paul is arguing here. But, you know, leave it to human beings, right? <laughs> right? We're not satisfied with the classic answer. We have to say, well, is that really what's going on here? And there have been some, like I said, in the last, I guess it would be about 40 to 50 years, uh, if you're interested, a couple of names are E.P. Sanders and N.T. Wright and others who have argued that our traditional understanding of Paul's opponents is wrong, that, that our understanding of the Jewish religion of that time is incorrect. And much of this line of thinking comes out of a movement which is called the New Perspective on Paul. Now, if you're familiar, if, you're, if you've ever served on any committees in the RCUS or in other denominations like the OPC, the PCA, uh, the United Reformed Church, Every one of them has done some kind of study paper, some kind of uh, committee to study this issue and to present some findings so they can declare what, this, what our denomination believes concerning this subject, the new perspective on Paul. And the, the RCOS is no different. Um, but the new perspective on Paul, this was a movement that was pushed forward by uh, a man named E.P. Sanders in his work, uh, it was a book called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Now, I haven't read it. I don't, <laughs> I, don't su- I don't suggest anybody else needs to read it, but that's just the name of the book where he put forth his ideas. And in that, he argues for a new way of thinking of, of the following. Whether he, he argues for a new way of thinking about justification. He argues for a new way of thinking about righteousness. And he argues for a new way of thinking about wor- uh, works of the law. Now, for us, we think of justification as a declaration, right? We, we believe by faith, and then God declares us righteous, not because we have an inherent righteousness, but because of our, through our faith, we receive the righteousness of Christ. And then, of course, righteousness, that righteousness, we, we see as a right standing or a, a moral quality. It's got a moral or ethical uh, dimension to it. And works of the law, of course, are is the opposite of faith. It's just you're trying to earn your way by obeying through obedience. You're trying to earn sort of putting God in your debt kind of a thing. That's the idea here. That's our understanding of these terms. Now, according to the new perspective on Paul, justification is not being declared righteous, but is, it is a vindication of Israel before, uh, by God before the Gentile nation. So they are... Now, that word justification does carry this idea of being vindicated, being sort of put into the right. You know, your, your cause has been upheld by somebody. And that's what they understand here, these scholars in the new perspective. They understand justification is sort of a national vindication of Israel before God's enemies. As far as righteousness, uh, they do not consider it to be morally or judicially right, but sort of just being in a covenant relationship with God. As long as you're in a covenant relationship with God, you are righteous. And then as works of the law, they're not deeds performed in order to obtain a right standing before God, 
But these are deeds performed to sort of enter into that covenant relationship. So things like circumcision, things like uh, observing dietary food laws, things that would be considered sort of like national badges of honor for, for, the, for the Jew, okay? Or covenant uh, national boundaries that marked off being Jewish from being Gentile. So that's how, uh, so how then does the new perspective see justification by faith apart from works of the law that we see here in Romans 3.28? Well, I have in your handout, this is a, um, a, a summary statement out of the OPC's study report on justification in which they looked at the new perspective of Paul. And this is a summary of what the new perspective teaches. Okay, this is not a summary of what we believe. It is a summary of what the new perspective teaches. And the report says, when we summarize Paul's doctrine of justification as it comes from the pen of Wright, that's N.T. Wright, and similarly from Dunn as another person who uh, subscribes to this view, we must recognize that it rotates upon the axis of ecclesiology. Let me explain that statement. What he's saying there is that the idea of justification from the new perspective is not about salvation. Okay, it is about belonging to a group, a community. That's what he means by ecclesiology. So the ecclesiology is the study of the church. So it's belonging to the covenant people. That's what they're saying. It's, it's more about inclusion in the Jewish people or inclusion in the church, not about my personal relationship between me and God. Okay, going on, he says, justification is the declaration of who belongs to the covenant people of God in the present. Those who are righteous or members of the covenant, who are marked out by faith, not works of the law like circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath, those, those badges of Jewish honor. It is also the anticipation in the present of what will happen in the future at the final day. Present justification is on the basis of faith, understood as faithful obedience, which anticipates future justification on the basis of the spirit-produced works of the believer. That's a lot of words there, but what you have here, this is a very subtle, yet very deadly change in what we believe to be true, in, the, in the, uh, what we believe to be the Reformed view of justification, because it's, it's removing this idea of a relationship between the believer and God and how that standing is marked out by our faith, how we are justified by our faith, and it's more talking about being included in a community, and then they also talk about future and then or present and then future justification, which is something we also don't believe. We believe justification is something that is declared now. You are justified by faith or by grace through faith. You are justified. There is no future justification awaiting the believer that is based on being faithful to the covenant law. Now, bear with me. There's, there's a method to my madness why I'm talking about this here, okay? Because we're going to talk about justification and how it's demonstrated in the life of Abraham. But I'm showing you here are some misunderstandings of who Paul was talking about and some misunderstandings of the doctrine of justification. So we can, you know, the idea is if you can understand what the, you know, if you know what the true is and you could spot the false, that's, that's the idea here. Okay. Another misunderstanding regarding faith and grace and works and law come from uh, the camp of dispensationalism. Now, we, if you were here for last Sunday night when we talked about the introduction to Revelation, we talked a little bit about dispensationalism, and really all we talked about in that was how it's 
uh, has a view of how to understand, how to interpret that book. The dispensationalist has an understanding, they have a a way to interpret the book of Revelation that we do not uh, agree with. But they also have a weird way of understanding the Jewish faith or uh, Judaism as well. Uh, Dispensationalism basically... They come, it comes in many shapes and forms, okay? If you were to say, what does a dispensationalist believe? You would not be able to come up with a description that would fit every single dispensationalist. In fact, trying to, trying to define dispensationalism is like trying to nail jello to the wall. It just doesn't quite stick because there's many flavors, many shapes and sizes. But there is one thing, there's really like two or three things, but one major thing that all dispensationalists believe, and that is a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. Okay, they believe that you know, Israel is not the church and the church is not Israel. Now, to, to contrast that, what the Reformed Church believes, what we believe, is that the church is sort of an expansion of Israel. Okay, Israel, comes, Israel is the old covenant people of God, and as the Messiah comes, as Jesus comes, that, that old covenant is, is expanded. It is replaced, in a sense, by the new covenant, which is expands the people of God to every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the, the covenant people of God are not reduced to a national group of people, but it is a, a people of faith, a people of faith who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and all the people of every tribe, tongue, and nation are the covenant people. So the church, I like to call it not a replacement, but it expands Israel. Okay, the church is an expansion of the people of, of, of God. But the dispensationalists will believe in a sharp distinction between Israel and, and the church. Now, again, how sharp this distinction is made depends on the individual dispensationalist. But some of the more radical views of dispensational will see Israel as earthly, as political, and as legalistic. So there's that sense of the legalism of of. Uh, Judaism there. Whereas the church is heavenly, the church is spiritual, and the church is gracious. Now these same radical dispensations will see, some of them will actually see two distinct plans of redemption. A plan for the Jews or a plan for Israel, and a plan for the church, which is why when you, you know, if you, you know, read through their works and you talk about people who believe in the, in the rapture and the tribulation, the rapture is like the taking out of the church, so that God can then finish his plan with Israel. So the church is sort of, they call the church sort of like a parenthesis or a, a pause in the, in the program that God has with Israel. And then the church is taken out and then God sort of resumes his plan with Israel. So they'll see two distinct plans of redemption. Now, the question becomes, do some of these dispensations actually see two ways of salvation? One way for the Jew, through works, through observing the Mosaic Law, and one way through faith and grace, like in the church. Probably not, but when you make such a radical distinction between Israel and the church, then you're, you're, you're almost kind of led down this path. I think you're almost kind of led, if, if you're going to say, well, God has a program for Israel, God has a program for the church, then you, you kind of almost want to say, well, maybe there are two ways of salvation, one for Israel, one for the church, Okay. Now, what does any of this have to do with Romans 4? Okay. That, that's, what is the cash value for this? Well, the, the argument Paul is making at the end of Romans 3 is going to be demonstrated here in Romans chapter 4. 
Paul argued that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. And now he's going to show how that is going to be carried out in the life of Abraham. Paul argued that there is one God who will justify, this is from Romans 3.29, or Romans 3.30, there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And now he's going to show us here how Abraham is also the father of all who believe. So instead of this idea of a plan for Israel, a plan for the church, God is a God of the Jews and the Gentiles. And he's going to show that justification through faith is for the circumcised, the Jew, and for the uncircumcised, the Gentile. It is the same plan of salvation. Okay, that's the point I was trying to make with that kind of long-winded introduction there. It's the same plan of salvation. And it is also not this idea of covenant belonging to a people. It is a right relationship uh, between God and the believer by being justified by grace through faith. So Paul is going to break this passage down. I, I see this passage broken down into three uh, parts here, uh, Romans 1, uh, 4, 1 through 5. Uh, Paul is going to show that Abraham is justified by faith just like we are. And then in verses 6 through 8, he's going to show how uh, King David kind of confirms this fact that we are justified by faith. And then in verses 9 through 12, he's going to show us that circumcision has absolutely nothing to do with justification. Okay, so those are the three sections here. So the first thing Paul wants to do is to show us the universal truth, okay, that all people are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Again, an expansion of what he, the argument he made at the end of chapter 3. And the way he does this, he, he goes all the way back. He goes back, 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 all the way back to Abraham, okay? He goes back to our forefather Abraham in Romans 4.1. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham... Our father, and really that should be forefather, our father has found according to the flesh. Now, I love the way that Paul mentions this here. He, the way he talks about it, it's almost like he's Perry Mason, okay? He's almost like he's Perry Mason in the courtroom, and he's like, okay, let's look at the evidence, okay? My argument, my thesis is that we are all justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Let's look at our evidence. And our, our, our first exhibit, exhibit A, is our forefather, Abraham. That's kind of what he's doing here. Now, a couple of comments on this verse here. Like I said, that word father is probably better translated forefather or ancestor. Uh, and the phrase there, according to the flesh. Now, depending on how familiar you are with Romans, this might trigger some, some memories of something Paul said earlier in Romans in chapter 1, verse 3 where he speaks of Jesus being born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So that phrase, according to the flesh, it speaks of a human descent, sort of just like a, you know, you know I gave birth to so-and-so, that person gave birth to so-and-so, it's according to the flesh. That's the idea he goes there. It also speaks of national descent. And, and again, if you look at that language, he says about Abraham, our father according to the flesh. Now, again, Paul, again, is talking to an imaginary uh, debate partner, okay? And this person is more than likely an imaginary Jew. So when he says, our father according to the flesh, he's talking about our Jewish ancestor Abraham, okay? Our Jewish ancestor Abraham. And he's reinforcing a common belief that Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. Abraham is considered sort of like the 
the, the progenitor of the Jewish people. Okay, he's there. You know, we would look to, you know, like George Washington is the father of our nation. Well, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. And you see this in a couple of places, particularly in John chapter 8. You don't need to turn there, but in John chapter 8, verse 33, uh, the Jews are confronting Jesus and they say to him, we are Abraham's descendants. So, I mean, it's just a, you know, he's, they're confronting something Jesus said and they're kind of re- rebuking him by saying, look, we're Abraham's descendants. We're Jews. We're real Jews. And then later on in John eight fifty three, the Jews also say to Jesus, they say, are you, Jesus, greater than our father, Abraham? So there the Jews, again, in that, in that conflict with Jesus are sort of buying into this notion that, that Abraham is their, you know, their guy. Okay? He's our guy. He's our forefather, according to the flesh. He's, you know, we, we follow Abraham. We come in, you know, we're true Jews. We're not, we're not somebody that came in lately, you know, like these Gentile converts. We are true Jews. Now, this is a true statement. Abraham is indeed the father of the Jewish people. Abraham gave birth to his son, Isaac. Isaac gave birth to his son, Jacob, who was later renamed Israel. And then Jacob gave birth to 12 sons who became the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, basically the people of Israel. So Abraham is indeed the father of the Jewish people. But this verse is setting the stage for what's going to follow. And then in using a familiar debate tactic, Paul then is going to assume the opponent's position and then show how it's false. That's a common debate technique, okay? If you're, if you're presenting a position and your opponent is presenting an opposite position, you say, well, let's assume what you say is true. Now let's see what follows from that. And that's what Paul is going to do here where he says in verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So, I mean, their position is that Abraham was justified by works. So Paul's going to say, let's assume that Abraham was justified by works. Let's see what we find if we assume that to be true. If it's true, then he certainly has something to boast about, right? We looked at boasting last week when, when in verse 27, he says, where's boasting? It is excluded by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Faith is essentially here the open hand that receives everything God gives to us graciously, right? And as such, if we are justified by faith alone, then there is no basis for boasting. That's the point Paul makes early on. But if we assume the premise of Paul's opponent, then Abraham would certainly be able to boast. He would say, hey, I earned it. I did it. I got here. (laughs) You know, I'm in heaven. I'm here. I made it because I followed the law. Aren't I great? You know, take a bow, Abraham. You, you made it. You, you deserve. You get everything you deserve. So then Paul says, okay, let's assume that's true. What does Scripture have to say about this? That's what he goes on to, to do in verse 3. He now looks at the testimony of Scripture. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So the Jewish idea here that you are justified by works is shot down immediately here. Scripture doesn't support that premise. Scripture, in fact, supports the premise that you are justified by faith. Now, Paul here is quoting from Genesis 15.6, and I think it will be helpful to turn to Genesis 15.6. I'll actually start reading in verse 1. 
So Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then it said of Abram, or Abraham, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So here what you have in the context of the situation here is in Genesis 15, you have God is going to eventually, later on in the chapter, establish his covenant with Abram, okay? He's going to establish the Abrahamic covenant, and he does it. Now, you know, you have to understand, too, it's a one-sided covenant, okay? Because he has Abram go and collect all these animals, and he splits them in half, and they puts the halves on each side of the other. And the idea is this is supposed to mimic or copy an old practice that was done when you establish a covenant with one another. If I was going to establish a covenant with Fred, and I'd say, I'm not going to go on your land, you're not going to come on my land, and to sort of ratify that, we would cut an animal in half, and we would both walk t- through the pieces, signifying that you know, if I violate the covenant, then my life should be forfeit like this animal here that was cut in half, and the same thing for Fred if he violates the covenant on his end. Now you notice in the, when the covenant is ratified, only one person goes through the pieces because Abraham is in a deep sleep. It is the Lord alone who goes through the pieces saying that the Lord is not only establishing the covenant, but he's also taking upon himself the covenant curses should he fail in keeping the covenant. Of course, God will never fail in keeping the covenant. But the, the context here is the establishment of the covenant with Abram. Now, if you recall in Genesis 12, God calls Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans and brings him into the land of Canaan. He just says, leave your home, pack up your bags, and go to the land where I'll show you. And Abram's like, okay, I'll go do that. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't have GPS, I don't have Apple Maps or anything, but I'll go. You tell me where to go, I'm going to go there. And then twice in the interim, God has promised Abram that he would have numerous descendants. He does so in 12.2, and then also in Genesis 13.16. And there he says, your, your descendants will be as the sand of the sea. But when we get to Genesis 15, Abram still has no children. <laughs> He's, you know, I mean, the name Abram means uh, father of multitude. It's like, I don't even have one kid yet. What do you mean father of a multitude? That's what he says in Genesis 15.3. He's like, look, I have no offspring. You have given me no offspring. And then God again promises that he will have countless descendants in verse 5. Count the stars if you're able to number them. He said, so shall your descendants be. And then when God says this, then Abram, it says, believes. He, he's believing in the promise of God. Okay, he has nothing to go on other than God's own word. And that's what he believes. And this belief isn't just that God is going to give Abraham a boatload of children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. This is a belief in the gospel itself, the promise of the gospel itself. 
That's what Paul will later say in the book of Galatians. In Galatians 3, verse 8, he says in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So on that promise, when God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans and tells him to go to the land of Canaan, in that is seen a preaching of the gospel. A preaching of the gospel. And then later on in Galatians 3.16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. So in other words, when God makes a promise to Abraham, now I'm not saying that Abraham knew all of the particulars of this, but what he knew is that God was going to do something. And he trusted in the promise of God. And that trust was what then it goes on to say that God then accounted him as righteous. It was this act of faith where, God, where Abram steps out in faith and just believes what God is promising him. And it is that act of faith then that moves God or for God to then account to Abraham, to account it to him as righteousness. Now we can go back to Romans 4. Now, Romans 4, 3 here, where Paul cites that verse. Okay, it's taken out of uh, the Septuagint. And if, does anybody here know what the Septuagint is? All right, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint because it's believed that 70 Jewish scholars who were well-versed in Greek wrote the Septuagint. That's just, the word just means 70. Uh, but it's believed, it, but basically it's the Jewish translation, or it's, the, it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's really, it's what Paul often cites from. He cites from the Septuagint. Jesus often cites scripture when he's citing Old Testament scripture out of the Septuagint. So sometimes when you see Old Testament or Old Testament citations in the New Testament, and then if you were to compare it to its Old Testament equivalent, you might see the words a little different from time to time. That's the reason why. It's because they're citing from the Septuagint, the Greek translation, whereas our English Old Testaments are translated directly from the Hebrew Bible. Okay? Just a little lesson there in the Septuagint. But it's the exact same wording because he's citing from the Septuagint here. Um, and that word that he uses there in verse... Three, uh, which is translated as accounted, is the Greek word legizomai. Now, this is a very important word uh, in relation to how we understand justification. Now, the word itself is just, it's, a, it's an accounting term. It's a math term. It means to count or reckon, okay? Um, so it carries this idea of tracking credits and debits in a ledger. The idea is like if you're, if you're an accountant, okay, and you're tracking credits and debits in an account or like a banker, you know, your bank book, you know, depending on how well you keep it, mine might have more debits and credits. But the point being is it's, 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 a, it's a term used to keep track of credits and debits. Now here, because of Abraham's faith, God is putting a credit of righteousness into Abraham's account. That's why that word is being used there. That's because this, again, carries this idea that the righteousness that we have through faith is not our own. It is given to us. It is credited to us. Okay, so when Abraham believes, God then credits his account positive. He gives him righteousness. He didn't have righteousness before. He now has it because of his faith. 
And this is where we get the idea of imputation. In fact, um, you might have, I know mine does, if you're using the New King James, in verse 3 where it says accounted, I have a footnote. You might have the same footnote there, depending on how big your footnotes are, if you can see them or not. You can look at the bottom there and it says, where verse 3 says accounted, it also says imputed, credited, reckoned, or counted. Okay, so again, you're getting these ideas of accounting language. This is, this is an accounting uh, uh, exercise here. Again, Abraham had zero righteousness before. He believes and trusts in the promises of God, and then God says, righteous. I'm going to put a big credit into your bank account. You are now, you're now rich in righteousness because I've given it to you. So this is a very important word that Paul uses as he speaks about justification. We're going to see it occur a few times here in our passage. So then when he gets to verse 4 and 5, we see now how the life of Abraham supports Paul's overall claim from the end of chapter 3. In verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted, there's that word again, legitimai, accounted for righteousness. So in verse 4, Paul is saying that the one who works for righteousness, his wages would be what he receives, are, are not out of grace, but debt. I mean, this is, I'm not telling you anything new, right? Okay, now I know many of you are farmers, but if you've worked in a field, with, like if you work where you get a, a salary or some kind of hourly pay, girls, you would know this, you worked at Brown's, okay, <laughs> and you paid them. So if they worked 30 hours in a week, you would owe them. You would be in debt to them to pay them whatever it was you agreed to pay them for that 30 hours that week. So their wages would be counted as a debt. That's what Paul is saying. It's like, so if, if Abraham worked for righteousness and if he was able to earn a righteousness, then God would be in his debt. God would have to then owe him righteousness because of what Abraham had done. Now, the problem, of course, is that God is in debt to no one, right? God owes no one anything. God is in debt to no one. There is no amount of labor in righteousness you can do that would somehow make God obligated to reward you. That's the whole point of what Paul says in Romans 3, 9 through 20. No one is righteous, no not one, no one seeks after God. They have all gone astray. The poison of ass is under your lips. Your feet are swift to shed blood. All those things. No one can earn this. But in general, the principle is true. If it could be earned, then it would be a debt. Then God would be obligated to give it to you if it could be earned. And then in verse 5, when you realize you can't earn salvation, you can't work for righteousness, and instead you have to believe on him who justifies the ungodly, then that faith is credited to you. It is accounted to you. It is imputed to you. It is reckoned unto you as righteousness. Again, going back to the accounting realm of wages and debt, think about what Paul will later say in Romans 6.23, where he says the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you want to earn something, the only thing you're going to earn is death. Sorry to say that. I know it's kind of a downer. 
But when we're talking in the realm of spiritual things, the only thing you can earn by working and laboring is death. Because that's what the wages of sin are. So now moving on to verses 6 through 8, Paul goes to David to further demonstrate his point, namely that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now Paul here is quoting from another Old Testament passage. This time it's Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2. So Paul writes, blessed, well not Paul, this is David, but Paul quotes from Psalm 32, 1 and 2. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man or the person to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Again, there's that word. Legizomai, shall not account, shall not reckon. Abraham, it is said, uh, is said to have believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now here's the flip side. The flip side of accounting of righteousness is the not accounting of your sin. So again, it, it, through his faith, uh, Abraham gets a credit to his account of righteousness. The other thing he gets to is that his sin is erased. Everything that was in the debit column is set to zero. And it stays permanently zero because he has the righteousness of God in his account. His sin is not accounted to him. His sin is not imputed to him. The one who believes in the promises of God in the Old Testament or on this side of the cross who believes in the person and work of Jesus Christ not only has righteousness accounted to them, but they also have their sins not accounted to them. I think, I don't know if it was last week or whatever, we talked about double imputation, where through faith our sin is imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. That's what he's talking about here. We get the righteousness and then our sin is no longer counted against us. Then in in Psalm 32, David considers this person blessed. The person is blessed who does not have their sins imputed to them. And this is undoubtedly true. What greater blessing is there than knowing that your sins are forgiven? What greater blessing is there than to know that God is not going to hold your sins against you? Is he doing this because he's a nice guy? (laughs) I mean, is God like, don't worry. I'm not going to count what you... No, that's not what he's doing. He's doing it because he's a gracious God who punished those sins. Those sins don't go unpunished. They are punished. They're just, you're not being the one punished for them. That's the good news. Those sins are being punished on the back of his son, Jesus Christ. And note further that the state of blessedness is not after having worked enslaved for your righteousness, but after you believe and trust in the one who justifies the ungodly. So then now, after showing us that Abraham is an example of one who is justified by faith apart from the law, Paul now is going to show us that this justification, this blessedness, has nothing to do with circumcision. Circumcision does not enter into this picture at all. Now, again, you remember when we looked at Romans 2 a few weeks back, circumcision was something they boasted in. They boasted in their having the law, and they boasted in them being circumcised. In other words, they were boasting about their Jewishness. We have it, you don't. We're blessed, you're not. We're in, you're out. That was what they were thinking. But here, the million-dollar question that needs to be answered is, 
When was Abraham counted as righteous? Was it before he was circumcised or was it after he was circumcised? Now note what Paul says here in verses 9 and 10. Does this blessedness, the blessedness that comes from knowing that your sins have been forgiven, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Is this for Jews only or is it also for Gentiles? For we say faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Then Paul answers the question, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So when was Abraham counted as righteousness? It was before his circumcision. God not only accounted Abraham as righteous through his faith, he also established his covenant with Abraham again before he was circumcised. And that's the point, right? Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. It is a sign of the covenant. That's what he says in verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So just by a simple tracking here of the chronology of the events in Abraham's life will show that, his, that this declaration by God as righteous was years before he received the sign of circumcision. Okay, you know, Genesis 15, oddly enough, comes before Genesis 17, right? I mean, Genesis 17 is two chapters later, right? But it's more than just two chapters later. It's actually a number of years after that, too. Now, I can't stress this enough here. Circumcision is a seal. It is a seal of the righteousness that Abraham already possessed by faith. And that's, that word seal, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Greek word. It's, I would stumble over it. But basically, it, it, the word seal means an attestation or a confirmation or a certification. Okay, my wife is going through EMT certification. Once she's done, she more than likely will get some kind of certificate saying, I have been certified as an EMT, a volunteer EMT. Now, that doesn't make her an EMT. It's just a sign that shows that she's gone through all the training and all of the, the, the work necessary to be certified. And then the paper just says, you know, she can go to somebody and prove to them, look, I'm certified EMT. I have the credentials. I know what I'm doing. Same thing for anybody else. Like in me, I've, I've been licensed to preach in the RCOS. It just means that I've gone through all of the necessary training and all the necessary examinations to, to do what I'm doing. That's what this means here. It's a confirmation or an authentication. Okay? So in other words, the circumcision does not make Abraham righteous. It is a seal of that righteousness that he already had by faith. It is his certificate. It is his proof. I am righteous by faith. I have been justified by faith in God and the promises of God. And now I'm this is my proof of it. This is my, how I show it to people. Well, I mean, I don't think you'd be showing that to people, but the idea behind it is it's, it's a sign and seal of what has been done in him already. And by virtue of this act on God's part, Abraham then becomes the father of all those who believe. Just like Paul said in Romans 3.29, is God the God of the Jews only? 
Or the God of the Gentiles too. And of course he says, of the Gentiles too. He's the God of the Gentiles too. So Abraham is not just the father of the Jewish people. He is the father of all those who believe. He is the father of all those who believe in the promises of God. He is the father of all those who are justified by grace through faith. He is the father of those who are uncircumcised, so it's clear that righteousness can be imputed to them also. But he is equally the father of the faithful Jews as well, as we see in verse 12. And he is the father of the circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. In other words, again, he is the father of the faithful Jews. The faithful Jews, the ones who... Don't, aren't just circumcised and then kind of do whatever they want to do, but the ones who actually believe and by obedience, by thankful obedience to God, show that they are, that they are humble and contrite in heart and that they, that they love the Lord and that they follow the Lord and that their obedience is not an attempt to earn salvation, but their obedience is an attempt to show that they have been saved. Not those who are physically circumcised, but those who walk in the steps of faith. This is what Paul had said later, or earlier, I should say, at the end of chapter 2, where he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outward, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But a true Jew is one who is inward, and the circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but of God. So when looking at the life of Abraham, we see rather than an example of someone who obtained righteousness through works of the law, we see one who believed in God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham is so much more than just the father of the Jewish people. He is an example of a life lived by faith, which is why the author of Hebrews includes a very lengthy portion of his book in chapter 11 in the Hall of Fame, the Faith Hall of Fame, a large part of that is devoted to the life of Abraham, who by faith did this, by faith did that, by faith he did this. Now next week, when we look at Romans 13 through 25, the rest of Romans 4, we're going to see Paul expand his argument on faith versus works to show that not only our justification, but also the very realization of the promises of God are also received by faith. That's what we'll look at next week.